Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Um, I'm the director of We Be Imagining. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm here with my co-host, Alain Mendel. What's up, Alain? Hey, Khadija. How's it going? Chilling, chilling. Can you say a little bit about yeah. who you are? Uh, my name is Ilan Mandel. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech. I use he, him pronouns. Cool. And um, this is actually going to be our third episode focusing on the child welfare system. Today we have Tina Lee, who is a professor at University of Wisconsin on the Stout campus. Um, her teaching interests are cultural anthropology, anthropology of gender, and contemporary U.S. qualitative research methods. And I was originally introduced to her work through um, a book published in 2016 by Rutgers University Press, Catching a Case, Inequality and Fear in New York City's Child Welfare System. And I have to say, I was shocked when I read this book um, for multiple reasons. One is I feel like there's so little written that's really good about child welfare. Definitely shout out to um, Dorothy Roberts for uh, Shattered Bonds and Killing the Black Body. And I really appreciate Kurt Mundorf's piece on um, reforming child welfare uh, uh, around the 13th Amendment. But other than that, there's not a ton written about it. And this was just so hard hitting and on point. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. And so Tina, if you could say a little bit about who you are beyond your academic bio and also if you use different pronouns than I said. Sure. Um, so I'm Tina Lee. Like you said, I teach um, in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is in, in Western Wisconsin. Um, and I use she, her pronouns. Um, so I guess I can just say that, you know, apart from writing about child welfare, I do a bunch of other kind of applied anthropology research on a variety of topics that have to do with inequality and public policy. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for the kind words about my work and I'm excited to talk with you about it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you again for coming. And it's interesting, Elam and I were talking about this, um, the other day is that we generally avoid people giving like introductory remarks about their work when they come on the show. Um, in part because so many times like academic things, people get stuck on some talking points or if we're talking about data policy or the things that are people are really familiar with. But even though we've had two prior episodes on child welfare, even when I'm in child welfare spaces, I feel like there's still a lack of understanding about the scope. Um, not just of New York City Administration of Children's Services in particular, uh, but child welfare more generally. And so I was hoping that you could kind of give our listeners a little bit of the lay of the land and, you know, maybe just like broadly outline the, the thesis of the book. Sure. So um, what we refer to as child welfare um, really has its, its roots around the turn of the 20th century. And it really goes back to systems that were um, pretty deliberately set up to try to police the parenting of, at that time, mostly immigrants, uh, mostly Southern Eastern European immigrants, Irish immigrants. And it starts in cities in the, you know, kind of on the East Coast. And it, it really is about trying to um, save children from parents who were viewed as unfit and parents who would be raising children that would continue to be a problem in our society. And over time, the system has kind of morphed into a system that really um, disproportionately targets and disrupts uh, families of color, but not just families of color. It's not across the board. It's really 
disproportionately African-American families in large cities around the country and disproportionately Native American families in other parts of the country. Um, and it really is a system that's set up where people can kind of anonymously make a report that a child has been um, abused or neglected. You can make that report anonymously. You can make that report with just a hunch with very little evidence. Um, and then every single state needs to have you know, an agency that investigates those reports. And it really is a law enforcement agency. Um, they will say that they are also supposed to be providing help and, and all of that. But really, the, the main job is to really investigate if a kid is being maltreated or not. And then the main uh, sort of service that they're able to provide in most cases is that they can um, find a way to put that child in um, a foster care. So foster care, what we refer to as, you know, really just finding another set of parents who can be paid by the state um, to be rate, to raise that child either temporarily or, or permanently. And ideally, the system should be trying to help parents kind of um, figure out whatever it was that brought them into contact with the system in the first place, um, should be giving them services to try to help them become um, better parents. But what I find and what most other people who study this, the system really closely find is that it really doesn't do that. Um, there's not a lot of, of, of help that families are getting, are getting from this system. Instead, it really is punishment. And um, a lot of people don't know about it because it is really heavily targeted in only a few communities. So most people that are caught up in child welfare are living sort of below the poverty line or right around it and disproportionately um, minority groups. And in major cities, it's a few neighborhoods and there are other places that child welfare almost never goes. Um, so if you're raising children and you're um, white or middle class, uh, you can be pretty well assured that that no one is going to come into your house and, and figure out if you've been maltreating your children. Um, instead, this is really targeted. And so folks who live in communities that are um, really affected by this by these systems know really well um, how it works and um, and know about it, knows the harm it can do. Whereas most other people in our society can assume because what we see in the media is what we see in the media that you know there's just a few bad parents they're really horribly abusive and someone needs to protect their children but the reality is most of cases really have to do with neglect and neglect most of the time is um parents who aren't able to provide the things their kids need. Maybe they have a drug addiction themselves. Uh, maybe they are experiencing domestic violence. Um, maybe they're just living in poverty and aren't able to supply enough food or medical care. Um, so we're really policing those families. And a lot of people in our society can kind of ignore it because we'll only see, you know, the few terrible cases of, of pretty severe abuse. Um, so that's kind of the system in it. I've really come around to the idea that there's not really a good way that I can see to reform it, um, much like discussions around prison abolition or around uh, defunding the police. Um, this is another one of those systems that purports to help people, but in the end, uh, really is more about punishment and it its parallels are really in policing and incarceration. It, the parallel systems are not the supportive systems that a lot of middle class people have access to when they're raising their children. The parallel is 
the way we deal with all kinds of other social problems. Um, if they're experienced by poor and non-white populations, they get punishment. Um, so that's really the system we're talking about. And I got really interested in it because I was interested in inequality and racism in our society in general. Um, and it was something that I had never thought about. Um, and my first introduction to it really came from um, a good friend of mine who used to be a paralegal at the Legal Aid Society in Philadelphia. She was in graduate school with me. Her name's Andrea Morell. She's an amazing scholar who writes about um, prisons in upstate New York. But when she was working as a paralegal before she went to graduate school, um, she was noticing that everyone who was coming into the Legal Aid Society who had a criminal justice case also had a child welfare case. And she remembers asking, what can I read to understand this? And everybody said, nothing. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Dorothy Roberts wrote her book a little bit before me. Uh, Richard Wexler is another person who wrote a kind of critical book a few years before. But you're right, there, there really hasn't been that much written about it. And I think a lot of people don't think about it because it is something you can, you know, pretty safely ignore and not have any contact with. And if you do hear about it, it's cases that are really terrible, heart-wrenching cases of kids who really did need protection and, and didn't get it. Um, but that's not the majority of cases, really, in any way, shape, or form. So, And one of the things that was remarkable to me about your book is that, you know, caseworkers are pretty tight-lipped. You know, there's we always talk about the thin blue line with the NYPD or like police officers more generally, but there are whistleblowers, you know, even when it comes to basic things like clearly there are arrest quotas. I think one could argue looking at the stats that there are removal quotas, um, but largely like there's no child welfare, like caseworker or whistleblowers, even given like the level of attrition. You know, I don't know what accounts for that kind of loyalty. Yeah. And so I was shocked reading your book that they allowed you to embed yourself, even not as a journalist, just as an anthropologist, but even that I'm kind of stunned. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about like, how did you get them to agree? And <laughs> what do you think about this lack of whistleblowers? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, so I, I didn't start with caseworkers. Um, so I'll, I'll start answering the question that way. Um, I, I started with the court system. And uh, I really expected more resistance than I got. And I, I, I wrote directly, you know, to... Uh, the, you know, sort of head judge in New York State and said, you know, I would like to be able to observe in courtrooms. And the answer was, well, they're public. So, okay. Um, but I, you know, I had one judge who let me sit in her courtroom for two weeks and observe everything, including her kind of backroom conversations and all of that. She was extraordinarily helpful. And I, I the way I came to understand that is, you know, the folks in the court systems, their answer to me when I would ask them, what do you make of the fact that, you know, 90% of the people who are coming through your doors are are Black and Latino and most of the attorneys are, are white? <laughs> what do you make of that? Their answer was, well, I we just deal with the cases we've, we get. So I think for them, they really see that what they're doing is following the law is providing, uh, you know, formal legal protections to folks. I think in New York City in particular, 
um, they have some things that they, they can point to that shows that they're trying to respect people's rights. You know, people get attorneys, all that kind of stuff. So, so they were actually really pretty welcoming and attorneys were, were pretty happy to talk to me and answer questions. And I, I think that's mostly because they can kind of see from their point of view that they're just sort of carrying out, you know, a legal perspective procedure. And then from those months of sitting in courtrooms, um, I got to know a couple of caseworkers. I would see people around. And there were some attorneys who used to be caseworkers who um, introduced me to people and attorneys who had relationships with caseworkers because they dealt with similar cases frequently. Um, They would introduce me. And I think the caseworkers were pretty willing to talk to me by and large because they are frustrated with the system. Um, I think in some ways they all enter it because they think they want to do something good. They would tell me that they really wanted to protect children. They wanted to help children. Um, So I think, you know, they don't do a lot of whistleblowing because I think from their perspective, what they see is you know, what is actually a sincere attempt to help. And I think the flaws they see in the system, they can more easily chalk up to a lack of resources, a lack of time. Um, So once they knew me and had seen me around, I was, I guess, maybe less threatening in a way. Um, But I had some, you know, the, the people that were the hardest to talk to for very good reasons, um, you know, were people who had been through the system. And um, that took a lot of trust building and took a lot of time um, staying around the child welfare organizing project in particular. Um, Their staff and their parents were were welcoming after they got to know me. Um, And they were pretty clear, and they should be, (laughs) that they needed to know what I was about and what I thought. Um, and some attorneys who are really strong advocates for parents did the same thing. I had one attorney tell me flat out she would only talk to me after she knew what my perspective was. Did I think this was a system that was working well or was I critical of it? Um, so it, it took a long time to get access to all of those different people. But I think part of the reason there aren't as many whistleblowers is really that you know the people who become caseworkers are people who want to be helping children. And I think in some ways within the constraints of the craziness they have to deal with, I think they can kind of tell themselves that they're trying to be helpful. And they would, they, I, they told me lots of stories of, you know, cases that were really tough and, and hard and times when they felt like they did get kids to better places. Um, but I think they're kind of, turning a blind eye to the larger systemic things. And interestingly, a lot of the caseworkers, especially in New York City, are are women of color themselves, but they are ones who've been able to get college educations, maybe come from um, slightly higher class backgrounds than a lot of their clients. And they are very... um, pretty open in talking about how the parents they see are dysfunctional. And I think the fact that they can kind of separate out helping kids and see the parents as the problem um, kind of leads them to be um, 
not as critical about it. And I think it's a little bit different from police forces where, you know, everyone knows the point of the police is, is punishment. Whereas in the child welfare world, no one would ever say that their point is to punish people, but parents know that they're being punished. It's, I think, pretty clear that that's what it is. You know, the, the orders you get when your child can come home are like parole orders. Um, so I, I think just that ideology of the need to help kids who deserve it and the idea that parents don't deserve the help, I think caseworkers can kind of be comfortable in that larger narrative that's really our entire culture. You know, after a certain point, when you're an adult, you know, we sort of tell ourselves that whatever happens to you is your fault and we don't really look at those larger structures. And I think for caseworkers who are women of color, you know, they don't they don't see themselves as being part of a racist system. Well, it's interesting. It makes sense to me when you talk about, you know, I think from the point of view of court actors, you know, whether it be the judges or the attorneys, when you're sitting in a courtroom, there's a level of formality in those interactions at that point in the pipeline that doesn't exist in the same way um, that I think at that moment of investigation, right? right? Because parents do, if it goes to court, they do get an attorney. But unlike a criminal investigation, you know, when the the workers come a knocking, there nobody reads Miranda rights. They don't guarantee that you're going to get an attorney if you don't want to speak to them. And in fact, if you don't cooperate, it's seen as a count against you that you're hostile etc. And then, you know, they're strip searching the kids, saying it's body checks. Yep. Um, and then the interesting thing about the, the the racial demographics of who's targeted and who are the frontline caseworkers is that controlling for race, but looking at ethnicity, my experience, and I, I've heard this from a lot of other people, I don't know if anyone's collecting statistics on this, but a lot of the frontline caseworkers, while Black, are often African um, born or like Caribbean immigrants. Um, and that kind of in part accounts for the class differences between them and like predominantly black American um, uh, clients who are more on the poverty line and don't necessarily have the same kind of lead back from, from their home country as some of the caseworkers. Yeah. Um, yep. I think that is, that is true. I'm not sure if there's official statistics, but that was part of my experience, not across the board, but more likely. Yeah. As you described. But I guess part of the reason why I ask about um, about whistleblowing is that some of this stuff is just so egregious. I mean, there's Richard Wexler did it, did a great job, and um, I think he was talking about like the moral panic of when they promote these cases, like Ms. Mary Brown, which you opened your book with, or a couple of years ago, which preceded the transition to a new um, commissioner of ACS in New York, was uh, the death of Zymer Perkins. But the vast majority are in there for neglect, right? Yep. But then you have this class action lawsuit that was in New York. Um, led at the time by Letitia James, who was the public advocate, who's yep. now um, attorney general, but saying that kids in care are basically two and a half times more likely to be seriously injured or, or harmed than they would be with their parents um, of low socioeconomic status, even if they have substance use problems. And there's just this, you know, immense harm that kids experience once in care, you know, even aside from the fact that obviously it's very traumatic to break kinship family ties and to have your kids removed from them. Um, and I just think about the level of outrage that somewhat has petered out, but that happened around kids being separated at the border. And in comparison to what we're seeing, which is just like very egregious, you know, once in a while you hear these stories about foster parents in Long Island who, you know, over 20 years uh, committed sexual assault against all these uh, troubled boys that were placed with him. But overwhelmingly, 
it is to me still amazing that more people don't speak out given kind of the day-to-day operation. Um, yeah. There's so many egregious things. It is. It, it, it is. And it's, um, you know, the high profile, really terrible cases um, just get more press than the foster care cases for whatever reason. And I, I think it really does kind of boil down to classism and, and racism and all of that, that it's it's easier to believe that all of these people are probably a problem, but foster parents are probably okay because they're doing this, you know, out of the goodness of their heart and, and all of that. But the systematic harms, I mean, it's, it's huge. And it, it's interesting because there's a whole history, you know, in the United States of not wanting to provide more universal childcare and more universal early childhood education. And some of the history of that, you know, decades and decades ago was the idea that we shouldn't be trusting government to raise children. Um, but yet we sort of do that with foster care with the idea that it automatically must be better because you're moving them to a better neighborhood or, or people who are wealthier or, you know, all of that. And we just turn sort of a blind eye to the really systematic harms that come from that. And, you know, Richard Wexler has been really great about collecting all the research that really documents this, that, you know, if you have a kid, you know, two children in similar household situations where, say, for example, you know, their mother has a substance abuse issue and, you know, basic resources aren't really there, you know, five, 10 years later, the child that's left in that household will do better than the child who's, who's removed to foster care. And we sort of know that, but the ideology that it's helping, that it's saving, you know, that's, it's just so pervasive and so hard to break through. And I think, you know, racism and classism is really at the root of, of why it is so hard for, for people to believe that it's, worse to to remove kids from what are perceived as as dysfunctional and terrible families um so it it is really it is shocking and it's been heartening to see more work about it um in the popular press and all of that but yeah the the parallels between the situation at the US Mexico border and how outraged people were that we were systematically removing children you know a lot of us <laughs> sort of looked around and said yeah, that, that, that sounds familiar. Um, and there were some good things written about it, but then it sort of faded away. And I think part of the reason the concern about the border has sort of faded away is for similar reasons, this kind of consistent narrative that their parents are lawbreakers and dangerous and all of that, that we've seen really ramp up over the last, you know, years of the Trump administration. I, I, I suspect that that's part of why people are maybe slightly less outraged about those separations because there's a kind of similar logic at work. Well, those people are our problems, are criminal, are, you know, bad people, whatever, the, all the rhetoric that the current administration uses. And then you can sort of maybe imagine that, you know, it would be better if they weren't with those people. And that's just, you know, kind of gone throughout a large chunk of American history is this idea that certain populations of people are, are irresponsible, shouldn't be trusted with kids, and their kids are always going to be better off with someone else. I also, I think a lot about how you, you talk about this mentality by everyone in the system around like, always trying to cover their asses, 
mm-hmm. right? Where where everyone is constantly trying to find a way to legitimate the fact that like action is better than inaction, but blame allocation must always be put elsewhere. Yeah. And and so you end up in this situation where like it's not about doing the thing that makes the most sense. It's about doing the thing that protects you in your position the most while kind of you know, allocating blame on if something goes wrong, foster parents. Right. <laughs> yes. And that kind of cover your ass mentality is, it, it is pretty pervasive. And it's, it's one of those things that, um, how to explain it, 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 in a certain way, I can, you know, if you read the way the media constructs these, when there is a terrible case like Samiri Perkins or Nick's Mary Brown or, or whatever, the media narrative is really that if the caseworkers did their job, this kid would be still alive and would have been protected. So there's this idea that somehow the system on a basic level basically works, but when there are these terrible failures, it's, it's probably the caseworkers fault. And I think the idea that you need to take what is going to be safest course of action from your point of view, i.e. a removal, will sort of protect you, you know, whereas if something happens terribly to a kid in the foster care system, either no one will ever know about it, it will never be a story, or if it is a story, it'll be the same kind of story, which is like, well, the system basically works, and this was one really terrible foster parent. So that kind of like there's a few bad apples, and you need to protect yourself from being one of those you know, I can I can kind of understand why why caseworkers and judges and everyone gets into that kind of mentality. And also, these are not, you know, these are incredibly stressful and kind of terrible jobs too. There's, you know, it it is, you know, the, there's such high caseworker turnover in part because they just get burned out so quickly. Um, and so, you know, I can, you know, it's, it's a, it's a terrible situation, but you can, I can kind of understand where it comes from, but then that leads me back into thinking about how little we value black families. If this is what we're willing to put up with, if, if this seems logical and reasonable, um, you know, as I've heard Dorothy and Joyce McMillan, who's a, who's a really awesome activist in New York city and other people say a bunch of times, you know, the idea that we would create a system that would work well if this is who it's targeting is, is is really kind of an absurd proposition. And I think we sort of put up with this system being messed up because it's a system that's, you know, targeted at people that as a society we don't honestly really, really value. Um, you know, that you need to say over and over, Black Lives Matter, you know, speaks to how little we th- we think of these groups of people. And can kind of, in a terrible way, sort of write off that, well, you know, <laughs> it's not perfect, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And it's it's a really terrible kind of situation. And I don't really see much of a way to really reform it. Um, I really think it is something that there just needs to be completely different ways to deal with supporting families that are about supporting them that aren't really about punishing them if their kids aren't getting their needs met. I mean, it, what was shocking to me when I started doing this research in New York City is, you know, the the abu- the few abuse cases that I did follow or hear about, 
the kids who had actually been physically abused in the kinds of ways that we're so horrified by when we see them in the media were more likely to be at home with one parent. Um, they weren't as likely in a lot of cases to end up in foster care because there would often be an attempt made to figure out who was the offending parent and who wasn't. Um, so it's not even that we're protecting those children. And then you look in, in, in other groups of people, you know, I had someone I was talking to when I was working on this research who told me, you know, their own story of growing up in a middle-class family and suffering some pretty terrible abuse at the hands of their father and how no one ever did anything, even though they tried to get the state to intervene and tried to get people to help them. So it's just, it, it doesn't work in any direction. We're not protecting children who need it. We're not supporting people who need it. And, you know, the answer to violence or children not getting their needs met is not to just compound it with yet more violence. Ripping a kid away from their parents is violent and it's not going to do well, anything. Sometimes, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, sometimes I, I, I joke around with people. If only ACS ran some gifted and talented programs, I feel like we'd abolish the system right away because it is so targeted against like black people and poor people, right? If you have something that's like desirable to white middle-class professionals, they would immediately be horrified and like demands like that everything must be burnt down. Um, and that's the thing is that like, do does do black families ever experience dysfunction? Yeah, of course, everybody everybody does, right? But half the dysfunction is caused by these systems. And if you are like a regular everyday person, a white middle class person, and you needed you know therapy, family therapy, you know a lot of the things that are on offer by ACS are not even things that you could opt in to pay for. So many of these things are like specialized to treat this pathologized, um, unfit black parents. Um, and so two of the questions kind of connected is that shortly after your book in February 2018, um, Trump signed the federal, what is it, the Family First Prevention Services Act. Yep. And so kind of the big impact that I saw, kind of the big function of this act was basically one, my favorite is that they actually, they put the PowerPoint slides from these meetings on the site, um, which I really appreciate. And the Virginia Child Services Commissioner, he had this one slide of um, a, a young black boy and a white boy in um, suits, like huge overgrown suits counting money. Um, and it was just like dollar signs, dollar signs. Because, <laughs> and I'll put this in the show notes for everybody to enjoy. Yeah. Because like basically one of the big things is that um, I think it used to be that it was a 70-30 match of 30% federal funds to match the 70% state funds. But they now made it a 50-50 match and it was unlimited um, federal funds that were matching for up to a 12 month period per family to receive preventative services. Um, although they could be renewed after that 12 month service, right. an unlimited amount of times. And it was just so much money for this very amorphous thing, which is on one half, just like preventing risk of being placed into foster care, which who's going to, how, how does that get defined? Who's going to define it largely just means the same people whose kids they were taking. Right. And then two was the other big component of it was all of these mental health services. And so I'm just thinking about this like growing therapeutic state because we talk about under-resourced, but there's so much money. And I mean, that just was so central to kind of the reaction by each of the states. Right. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that act and how it kind of, where do you see that going? Yeah. So I... <sighs> My, you know, where I see it going is the services that count as prevention in this world 
um, of child welfare, whenever I looked at them or talked to people about them, almost never did someone tell me a story about how they got needed help that was what they needed it, when they needed it, and that it actually made their lives better. The stories I heard about preventive services are that it was what someone else decided you needed um, and that it was basically just a different way to put more surveillance in your home. That's how people understood it and that's how they experienced it. That when you had to go to your mental health counseling that was paid for in terms of prevention, those folks knew that as a preventive service provider, they had to report everything they saw. And they would, I heard tons of stories of people that had close relationships with preventive service agencies, felt like they were getting some help. And if those agencies didn't report them, if say they had a relapse or, you know, the abusive partner came back to their house or whatever it was, that those preventive service agencies were not encouraged to prevent the kid coming back into foster care. They were encouraged to continue to report. And I heard a couple of stories of, of caseworkers at preventive agencies who were removed from supportive roles when they decided it, they didn't need to report. You know, if, for example, they decided, you know, drug, you know, relapses happen, for all addicts, she's dealing with it. The kids are safe. I'm not going to say anything. We're just going to keep going. Um, if a caseworker at ACS found that out, would tell them, no, you have to report because she had a positive test and we need it. So the preventive services ended up being a source of more reports. And in some cases, the way that the kid eventually came into care and even if people were getting, say, maybe they did have a mental health issue and really did need counseling, they don't feel like they're getting help from a preventive service agency because they know that agency is being paid for by the child welfare agency. They know that they're encouraged to report. And if they had a private therapist, you know, that person isn't going to just feel compelled to report everything but the preventive service agency people very well might because where does their contract go? if they're not doing what the agency sort of thinks they should do. So even if people are getting the kind of help that they might want, they're really still not getting that help because how do you trust someone who's supposed to be reporting you anytime something new happens? So my sense of how all of pouring more and more money into preventive services, I don't see it as doing really anything to change the kids that are getting into foster care and the parents that are are having their kids taken from them and the families that are being ripped apart, I see it as, you know, more of a, an opportunity to sort of think we're doing a good thing, but it's not the kind of thing that people need. People need support outside of a surveillance system and more preventive services is essentially giving them kind of fake or pseudo report, you know, support inside what's essentially remaining kind of a surveillance system. And then a lot of the money goes for all this mental health stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm not at all saying that mental health treatment is not important or it's not needed or anything like that. But for a lot of families, the root of all of this stuff is not that, that they can't, you know, manage their 
mental health, it's, it's structural things. It's, it's jobs, it's healthcare, it's money, it's um, safe housing. And, you know, just taking all of these problems that are really structural and are really about poverty and inequality and racism and stress and unsafe housing and all those things and rebranding them as just your mental health issue you know, it's just, it's not the kind of thing that people need and not that people don't need mental health support, but in a lot of cases, what they need even more is these really material supports. And, you know, a lot of times the mental health diagnosis of folks that are caught up in these systems isn't, you know, it's, it's a reaction to what else is going on, you know? I think so. I so think Khadija and I thing. talk about the the language of care a lot and the way that it's sometimes used as a, as a kind of cudgel towards, yep. uh, you know, ignoring larger systemic issues. Yep. I'm also thinking a lot about how as soon as people are at all touched by this system, it immediately seems like the steps they have to go through uh, make it more likely that the worst case scenario is going to happen. And you talk even about like the way that like people have a time to go to court and it's like an AM or PM. And so that, you know, like your whole day is wrapped up just in court to figure out what's going to happen next. And so you're maybe more likely to lose your job and then you're more likely to, you know, lose your kid because now you're unemployed and unfit and, and exactly. poverty. Yeah. I, 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 I remain really struck by this one attorney who told me when I first started doing this job, whenever they would throw services at my client, I was like, great, you're helping them. And now I tell them to fight everything because every single service is an opportunity to mess up. <laughs> so sorry, Elon, I didn't mean to cut you off, but. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly the point, right? Like anything, anything that is framed as care uh, should, should be taken with like a very large grain of salt. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is well, really of... hoops to jump through. Um, because nobody, you know, another attorney said to me, nobody is convinced that anybody gets better from any of this stuff. All we, all we do is report that they went. <laughs> so, you know, it's just compliance. It's not, it's not feeling cared for. It's not feeling supported. It's not demonstrable improvements in your life. It's compliance. And that's the point of the system, right? Is that like, you're not proving you're a good parent. You're proving that you're compliant to the standards that have been laid out in front of you. Exactly. And, and those standards are to a large extent impossible in the face of, of poverty and, and, you know, addiction and, and all of these kinds of much larger systemic issues. Yeah, exactly. No, I was just thinking, you know, the thing that to me is fascinating is that reading your book and like sitting through many, many, many uh, meetings and various events through ACS or other child welfare things is that everything now is like talking about your feelings. Everything is trauma informed. Everyone is talking about like racial disproportionality. And like when we look at the numbers, I think like child welfare is interesting and that it's very regional. Um, and so New York City is unique in that even though black people are disproportionately overrepresented in every state, um, it's almost exclusively uh, black and Latinx. And I mean, even with that, it's an ethnic uh, classification. I don't know who gets to choose, you know, which bucket somebody falls in. Um, 
but oh, what I was gonna say it was that the removals have significantly dropped since the height in the 1990s. But where we see that kind of other amount of people who typically would be removed into foster care once under investigation, we see them now in the preventative services roles. Yep. Um, and so they recently ACS put out a, 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 a NRFP recently for like software to process and make like uh, data insights about all of its preventative service referrals, and it's saying that it's getting like about 1,800 a month. Um, And I'm just thinking about, like, what does it mean to have this level of monitoring and surveillance? Because the point doesn't necessarily seem individual as much as it is uh, taking this, like, population or cohort level analysis. And, like, what is the data aftermarket for that? I don't know. But it's just something interesting I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of parallel to to the some of what you see in the world of policing and incarceration with this like we'll just monitor people from the outside we'll just give them a monitoring bracelet and rather than throw them in a cage we'll just monitor them in the community um it's a it's a sort of parallel process to that because it's just not you know you're not a bunch of parents told me you know as long as they're in your life you're not free to just live your life you can't you know, do what you want, go where you want, raise your kids as you see fit. You're always looking over your shoulder. So I think it's certainly better to at least have your kids living with you for sure, but it's still surveillance. It's still monitoring. It's still sort of, um, you know, making it so your life isn't yours. And, um, you know, parents would tell me all the time that they sort of felt like, as they were being monitored by the government in this way, that it it really worsened their family life. You know, I had I, I, I recount some of this in the book, but I had, you know, one young mom that talked about, you know, for months after her investigation, every time someone locked at the door, she was, you know, screaming at her kids to clean up this mess and all this stuff and just the the stress and the deterioration of family relationships that that that, that brings. Um, just, I, you know, I'm not convinced that preventive services are really lessening surveillance, lessening punishment. It's certainly better in the sense of, you know, a removal of your child from your home is incredibly traumatic. Um, but it's not, it's not, you know, a a much better, I mean, it's better in that way, but it's not better in all the other ways. Well, also, I was just going to say, sorry, Ilan, to cut you off real quick. I was just going to say that it's also interesting for an agency or for a system that's not technically classified as law enforcement, since you don't have this, you know, constitutional Fourth Amendment right to reasonable search and seizure and all these things, right? If you have an indicated report, and like, imagine, like the investigation is very amorphous. So they're not necessarily investigating if you if they said you smacked your kid, whether or not you've smacked them is not necessarily what they're looking at, but are you generally worthy, which is so subjective. That indicated report, you stay on file with the state central registry for 28 years exactly. after your after your youngest child turns 18. So in terms of like the impact that this has on people's lives and like the limited ability to appeal, it's like incredible. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And it bars you from all kinds of jobs. It, um, you know, I, I met basically no one who really felt like they had anything had happened other than that they were worse off, less secure, less healthy, less anything from, you know, dealing with all of this. And the state central registry stuff is, is, is huge. And, um, you know, some reforms of that are, are really, really important as well. I mean, I don't, you know, we're essentially sort of barring people from 
the very jobs that they're most likely to be able to get to support their families in a lot of cases. Um, so it's just, it's, and it's, so you're setting them up for a long-term struggles for long-term needing to continue to be in contact with the system if you're not getting your kids' needs met. Um, and yeah, that saying we're just social workers, you know, I had a couple of caseworkers who thought about it and and did tell me, you know, one in particular told me she want, you know, they want to tell us we're a social worker, but I'm just doing law enforcement. Um, yeah, and you're right. You, you mentioned this earlier that if you try to question their ability to do an investigation without giving you a lawyer or, or telling you what your rights are or even questioning whether they're allowed to be there at all, then the assumption is automatically, oh, it must be even worse than we thought. You're hiding something. Um, and it's really um, just sort of a no-win situation. Um, you know, the, Asserting your rights is just going to make it worse. Uh, so it's a it's a huge problem. And for a long time in New York City, you know, attorneys were doing their best. Um, but when I was around, you know, they weren't necessarily equipped and, and had way too many cases to really try to fight for people. And it's been um, a really huge improvement to have, you know, the Bronx Defenders and Brooklyn Family Services and those um those sets of attorneys have been doing a much better job of trying to, to fight on behalf of parents. But what I saw was some really great attorneys and, and a lot of attorneys who were just completely overworked or sort of agreed with the caseworkers. And, you know, it was just a formal process of, of sort of nodding towards respecting their rights without, you know, really doing so. Um, but even that is you know, it's helpful to at least have someone. Um, I've started kind of looking at the child welfare system here in Western Wisconsin, which is um, almost an entirely white community. Um, and here, child welfare cases are really concentrated among the most poor and most rural folks in our county um, who live in a couple of, of, you know, neighborhoods or little parts of town and people can kind of identify. Um, but here, an attorney is not a requirement. And I've been finding that it's ironically a lot easier to lose your kids permanently here in Wisconsin than it was what I saw in New York. Um, Wisconsin is much better at keeping to the, the timeline in the Adoption and Safe Families Act. So they're moving to terminate parental rights pretty quickly here. And um, because people don't always get attorneys, caseworkers in some cases are, are pretty good at talking parents into giving up their rights kind of formally voluntarily. Um, and I'm finding here that not, that even that that you know the absence of any kind of legal representation is a, is a huge problem for some of these parents. Um, and and Wisconsin is interesting because you have to go through a jury trial to lose your parental rights. And essentially what I'm hearing from the caseworkers here is they want to avoid that at all cost because they're afraid they're going to lose. So they do their best to try to get parents to give up their rights voluntarily. And they'll tell parents things like, well, you don't want to have to go through this huge trial and be questioned about how terrible you are. It'll be better for your child. You're doing a brave thing by giving them to a better family. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And one of the things that I was thinking about is that a huge scope of the show was around tech and data policy. And for a lot of people in that world, um, the pilot predictive analytics program in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, was the first time that they were kind of exposed to thinking about child welfare, that, and I would say uh, Virginia Eubanks book, yeah. um, Automating Inequality, which that was one of the three kind of uh, 
human service sectors in which he looked at the adoption of automated decision-making systems. Um, and the thing that's interesting, when you think about policing, the canonical argument around um, ADSs is, is about this concept of pre-crime. And people always bring up the minority report and they think about that. But child welfare is basically ground, like foundationally about pre-crime yep. um, and like pre-tech, pre-crime, pre-tech. Um, and I was just thinking about the chapter that you have dedicated to defining the neglect and risk assessment in practice. And part of it, you know, there's, again, people use all this uh, language about racial disparities. And when they talk about removing bias from caseworkers are largely talking about removing the decision making from the predominantly black frontline caseworkers to um, the, the software engineers, basically, that are building the socio-technical systems. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, risk assessment and this kind of this, this focus on like collecting all this data and analyzing populations and child welfare. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole, you know, idea behind risk assessment is exactly like you say, you know, it's identifying who's likely to have something really terrible happen to them, but all the data we can feed in to all of those models and all of the predictive analytics, or even just the sort of check boxes that caseworkers before all of that came about used, you know, all the data that we have to speak about who's at risk at child of child maltreatment is data about children who have been deemed to be maltreatment and maltreated in the past, right? So the data, it's presented as if we have all this data about these children who actually were maltreated, and then we just look at their characteristics, and then we can run all the stats and figure out what are the characteristics that predict who's likely to be in that box. But we're starting from 100% flawed data, right? We're starting from um, caseworkers who might indicate or not indicate cases in other words, say, yes, this bad thing happened, or no, it probably didn't, at rates that are wildly different across agencies, across cities, across states, where there's huge potentials for bias, and where, uh, you know, indicating that something happened could be, you know, and i and saying, you know, yep, this is an indicated case, this child was neglected, could be anything from, you know, the mom admitted she smoked pot last weekend to, you know, there's no food in the house and the, you know, the child is sitting, you know, with no clean clothes, you know, there's this huge range of things that could happen, a huge range of how people make these decisions differently. You know, younger caseworkers, I think in a lot of ways are more likely to indicate more things because they don't have as much experience. Um, you know, and all the biases come in and, and they're comparing to their own upbringings or they're young women who've never had children and don't really have a, a good way to assess. You know, there's all these problems at every single stage of the investigation. You know, there's tons of potential for error. There's tons of ways that biases come in. There's tons of stories about caseworkers who just, because they have too many cases, fabricate things. So the data we're feeding in to get these risk models is 100% flawed. Um, you know, if we're only reporting or, or disproportionately reporting African-American kids, and then we turn around and say, oh, well, more of the kids with an indicated case are black, then race becomes a risk factor. Race isn't a risk factor at all. Um, 
but that's how the models work, right? So it's, it's starting with flawed data, spitting out yet more flawed data and sort of reinforcing the idea that certain people just are systematically not fit and that certain things are risky. Um, and it's just, and then to turn around and say, well, because there's an algorithm or because we fed it through a computer, it's not biased is just 100% wrong. But, you know, Richard Wexler has written about this in his blog a few times that, you know, agencies can kind of hide behind, oh, it's not biased because it came out of an algorithm, but the data you fed that algorithm was biased from the get-go. So it's just, um, I, it, to me, I think the more of the impetus for risk assessment and all of that is to automate it, to make it faster, uh, to make it cheaper. Uh, I think that some of the kind of reason why people want these kinds of things is not so much, be, you know, because they're looking for a less biased way. That's a really good argument for it, but it's not less biased. But it also just, it it kind of makes things more uniform, more standard, um, makes it easier to audit so that you can tell who's doing their job or not. Um, so I think some of the the kind of motivations behind getting to these systems it's not really so much that they're wanting to reduce bias, but they're wanting to sort of make things more uniform and 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 better able to defend and hide behind. And this idea that if it comes out of a an algorithm or a computer, it must be true or it must be not biased is a pretty deep-seated one that's very um, you just really can't justify that at all. Yeah. I mean, so it's just... everyone's hiding behind algorithms, right? Exactly. Like this is kind of the new, the new world we live in. It's like the system told me that I do want to, I do want to pivot to something that, that is actually not within the book, which is there, there was this whole discourse, right? When New York went into lockdown around all of the, all of the abuse and neglect that was now being missed because yes. all of the mandated reporters who are, you know, all these teachers who might, who might see things, now Aren't. can't right mm -hmm. and uh i i was curious if there were kind of updates in that regard but the other thing that comes to mind is like the same the same parents who are most at the you know victim to these systems are often the same parents who we've been calling essential workers for the past you know seven months now yep. and and so there's you know there's the covid risk that gets wrapped up into this somehow and then um, you know, Khadija and I, we, we interview a lot of academics. And one of the things is that academics have good Wi-Fi, right? Like, this is why we end up interviewing a lot of academics. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there was this moment where everything went to Zoom court. And I'm imagining the, the ways that people might be policed for just having bad Wi-Fi, right? Like, if you have to, if you have an appointment with ACS or, or with the courts, and you can't make it because you just can't get online. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you had had any kind of updates around the the new world we're in. Yeah. Um, I have a couple. I don't know that I know tons and tons, um, but uh, there were lots of reports, and I I heard this a lot from you know the activists and and folks who work in this world that I'm still in touch with that. Um, that in some ways, yes, reports went way down because there were fewer mandated reporters in contact with families. But there were also some really disturbing reports of things like schools calling if parents hadn't logged into virtual school after a certain period of time. Um, so that was a huge thing in several different jurisdictions around the country where essentially the way schools currently will just call in a string of reports for everybody who missed more than 
two weeks of school or whatever, they were doing the same thing. You know, we're calling in everybody who didn't log into Zoom before. They were also calling in New York yep, for people who requested. The exactly. They asked, they asked who wanted them. same amount of reports or just reports about slightly different things. Um, I haven't heard updates from everybody at family court about what they were doing if people were missing virtual visits and things like that. Some of the reports I got were they were just postponing stuff just straight out. Um, and for a while, we're cutting off people's visits and that kind of stuff. So the initial sort of first few months of it, as I understand it, were pretty terrible because things sort of ground to a halt and people who were, uh, you know, maybe making progress towards reunification or towards getting ACS out of their life had everything kind of stop because um, visits were being cut off um, and all of that. So there was both different kinds of reporting and a lot more hardship in terms of moving through a case if you were in the middle of a case when it started. Um, and the, the point you made about a lot of these parents being essential workers, um, I haven't I haven't heard updates about what was going on with when people had to go to work and whether childcare was still available and and that kind of stuff. Um, I would suspect we might start to see uh, reports for you know people who were having to leave kids home alone and that sort of stuff. Um, I'm going to guess that we might start to see see some of those because we haven't really, you know, provided supports for these essential workers. Um, but it, it really was, you know, again, this idea that we needed to, to protect foster parents from having, you know, extra exposure from their foster kids when all we should have been saying was either, all right, this is a good time to send those kids home. <laughs> if you're anywhere close to being coming home, you need to come home now because we can't let you visit or just setting it up so that that could be done safely. It was really horrifying to, to hear about people's visits being cut off. And I'm going to guess that what we'll see as things maybe start to tick back to normal is a lot more delays in reunification as the effects of all of that are felt. Because, you know, we had, I, I heard of several cases where, you know, if visits weren't going well, caseworkers would sort of backtrack on their efforts to reunify. And I can imagine a lot of situations where kids who maybe didn't get to see their parents for a while might not take to visits very well. And they might not go well. They might act out in all kinds of ways um, that might lead caseworkers to delay reunification even further. So I'm I'm kind of pessimistic and kind of feel like it's it's going to throw a lot of nasty wrenches into people's cases. Um, you know, and the, those are some of the updates I have heard. Well, thank you. And shout out to Movement for Family Power, yeah. who I know is uh, working nationally to try to repeal ASFA, yeah. um, the law that mandates adherence to these timelines for terminating parental rights, because um, it, a system that's already destroying, systematically destroying families' ties uh, now just is... Uh, like on steroids during right. COVID where they don't even feel the need to do the bare minimum. Right. Um, and so with that, we are at the 58 minute mark. And so we have like a little tradition on the show that um, we'd like to end with any recommendations or something that you're reading, you're listening to watching um, that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. It could be on topic or off. 
Um, huh. That's a good question. Um, so I've started reading more about algorithms and artificial intelligence, actually, than we've brought it up. So I, you know, I love Virginia Eubanks, who we've already mentioned and really, really loved her book. Um, so another one that kind of in that realm that I'm reading that I really like that I'm kind of testing out for a, for a new course on, on ethics and, and race and gender and algorithms and artificial intelligence and all of that is algorithms of oppression, um, which is all about search engines and how Google and others um, take data about who's likely to watch or like certain things and sends a lot of um, kind of inadvertently racist or sexist messages to people and in terms of what they will be shown when they search for certain things. Um, so that one I really, really like um, and have been enjoying thinking a little bit more about just that general idea that if it goes through a computer, it must be not a problem. So I've been, you know, that's one I'd recommend, Algorithms of Oppression um, by, um, her last name is Noble, but it's really yeah, we love Sophia Noble. Yeah, so she came on the show. Yeah, um, oh good, <laughs> and I love Virginia too, although cool. she hasn't been on the show yet. <laughs> you should get her to come. <laughs> I've never Feel met her. Feel free to assign the podcast to your students. <laughs> yes, actually, actually, yes. Um, we were we were working on planning this class. I was talking to some folks, um, colleagues in the math department who teach math and computer science about it, and I was telling them I was going to be on your podcast, and we should all assign it when we teach it. So it's already on the list. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for making the time, especially I, I, I do have a lot of empathy for academics who are in like the first semester of part two COVID wave and <laughs> are making the time to come on the show. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. All right. Thanks again. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. You can listen to us on uh, Apple, Spotify, on the website, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever major podcast platforms are found. Please write to us at webeimagining at gmail.com. Um, thanks so much, y'all. That's it.